This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by ShipStation. For two months of free, no hassle, stress-free shipping, go to ShipStation.com and click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in Mr. Creeps. And HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16 and use code MrCreeps16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we have another great collection of spooky stories that are going to give you chills. As always, thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. It really means a lot and without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. And with that, let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I've been awake for 141 hours without sleep. Written by Longtime Lurker 067. Five days and 21 hours, 141 hours, 8,460 minutes. That's how long it's been since my sanity left me. 1.13 a.m. Saturday morning, my Fitbit was showing a lovely light blue line of REM sleep. Then at 1.14 a.m., it spiked. 184 beats per minute. From a dream. 141 hours. That's almost enough time to watch Game of Thrones twice over. Where's Hodor when you need him? And sad joke, maybe you'll get it later. My mind isn't fully focused anymore. I can feel my thoughts bouncing around from one thing to another. I apologize in advance. 264.4 hours is the record for being awake the longest. I googled it. I have the time. I doubt that I'll make it through tonight. The eyelids are getting too heavy. I just want to put my story out while I still can. As you can probably tell, I'm no writer, but I'll try my best. Now, where should we start? Maybe a little bit about me. I would call myself an introvert who always wanted and not to be. I've always tried to get out of my shell to just get over it, but to no avail. Drugs and alcohol would help for a bit, but in the end, it would always come back to... Why are you so quiet? Or you're pretty awkward. So I learned to embrace the introvert. It's not so bad, but it can be depressing when it's not what you think you want. The mind's funny like that. You want to, want to be outgoing, but something stops you. The deeper want to not embrace yourself, to just play it safe. So that's what I did, I played it safe. You can't get hurt when you don't put yourself out there. So I would read, Creepy stories being a favorite of mine. You can't beat a good Stephen King book or some of the no-sleep posts that I lurk on. So yeah, supernatural stuff. I love to read it, but I'm a level-headed guy. I believe in science. I believe most things can be explained with real-life proof. And the right conditions. However... I want to, really want to, believe that there is an unexplained side to life. I felt in my life that I've had a lot of experiences with deja vu. I've even had some small and insignificant dreams that replayed themselves in reality. 
like real precognitive dreams. Now, I feel that the irrational side of me wants to explain all that was something to do with the human psyche. Possibly only a small part was familiar in a dream, and in hindsight, I'm making it out to be an exact replica. But the want to side of me wants to believe that I have some kind of extra connection to an unknown world. I know that's just plain silly though. Bigfoot, come on now. Witches and wizards meeting up on Diagon Alley for some butterbeers. It would be fun to believe. I mean to really truly believe, but we just can't. It's human nature. But some things we give just a glimmer of hope to believe they could be possible after all the doubts. Now, what about the human psyche? That's something interesting that is tough to have concrete evidence. Everything is perceived differently to different people. My 10 out of 10 pain could be your 4 out of 10. My favorite food could be your least. Examples never end. So, I read about microdosing and how life-altering it can be. For those of you who don't know, microdosing is basically taking a small amount of psychoactive drugs daily to achieve a different state of mind, possibly permanently. Anyways, I'm a construction worker, a safety-sensitive job, so I can't be messing with that and I can lose my job. But maybe just maybe it could break me out of my shell. It could be possible after all. Either way, it's not worth the risk. I better play it safe. So, I was deep on no sleep reading one night and I found myself reading a story on astral projection. You know, lucid dreaming. Out of body experiences, the likes. It interests me, you know, the want to believe side of me. But I don't really believe. You see the pattern here, right? So I just chalk it up to something else that can be explained. Different variations of sleep paralysis. Sleepwalking dreams closely enough resembling life that the mind believes it to be real. You know, logical excuses to supernatural things. Well, the world went on a shutdown. People stopped working. I was one of the lucky ones who kept working, and I wasn't affected too badly. But as everyone knows, one of your friends gets the virus and you're off to get tested. Ten days of work regardless of the results, so here I am. Ten days of work and nothing to do. The funny thing... I still have a couple grams of mushrooms from my camping trip sitting in my cupboard. Screw it. There's no other opportunity that I'll have this much time off with zero plans. Let's do this. Let's microdose. The first two days of microdosing, I was only taking like 0.1 gram a day. Went to pretty much as usual. No real changes. But an idea popped into my head. What a genius. I should try astral projection while I'm microdosing. If it doesn't work now, it's obviously just a bunch of crap. I mean it is anyways, but let's try to believe. The third night, I look up the process for astral projecting. I try it and I get to the vibration stage. Basically, everything begins shaking. I don't want to get too much into it, the science of it here. I'm trying to believe. That's as far as it went for the first night, which actually felt like a pretty big success. 
Oh, and my cat. I almost forgot about the cat. She's an interesting one. Maybe we'll go rational first and then supernatural. Change it up a little bit. So, she had an incident. She fell off a balcony three floors. I was amazed to see that she was alive with no physical damage. But she wasn't really completely the same after that. Her demeanor would change on a dime. From the usual, very affectionate loving animal to the harbinger of death in an instant. You know that cat screech you hear in any scary movie? That is a daily occurrence now, for no reason. She could be sitting there enjoying a nice scratch behind the ear one moment and then a low, guttural growl begins in her throat. She starts arching her back, throwing paws and screaming at the next minute. Something was dislodged in her brain, and she's crushing the bipolar now. But I still love her, and I can usually talk her down when I start seeing the signs. The ears tilt back flat on her head. Pupils begin to dilate until they are the size of saucers, and she's about to lose it. Talk soothingly and calmly, and do the old pss, 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 pss. and she will usually come out of it, ah, poor thing. Or maybe it dislodged something else in her head. All cats are always staring off into space, seeming to see things that aren't there, chasing after nothing, playing with the shadows. Maybe cats are creatures that have a window slightly cracked open to that other unexplained world. A window where friendly little entities can slip through, frolic by and get chased by a cat, float around in the ceiling and captivate the pod. Maybe just maybe... The fall that broke that window wide open and something bigger and less frolicky gets through now. Well, if that's not foreshadowing, I don't know what is. I forget that I mentioned it. Anyways, the next night, I get the vibration stage and it whooshes to an end. I can't hear anything. Just an ominous silence. Quieter than silence. Some of this is going to be hard to put into words and I'll try my best. I'm excited that I made it to vibration. However, I'm worried about what I had done to my hearing. I tried speaking, but nothing comes out. Or did it, and I couldn't hear it. It's not that I don't remember, it's that I couldn't tell which it was. Like it was neither but both at the same time. I decided to get up and go to the washroom, splash some water on my face, and hopefully I would fully wake up. I'll get into the hallway, and I see the cat. She stops mid-stride and looks at me. She freezes. Staring at me, not getting angry, but not happy, just frozen. I'm getting a little weirded out now. No footstep sounds, no heartbeat in my temples. Nothing. I turn my head the other way, down the hallway when I catch a glimpse back into my bedroom. Now this goes against everything I want to say as possible. I know most of you will probably call this BS on me now, but this is my story. I see legs on my bed. Not just any legs, but my legs attached to my body. I am in my bed, but I am also in the hallway. Writing this sounds like I'm trying to make it sound like I was scared. I mean I was, but not. I was excited. Beyond excited and terrified. It made no sense. Like I was beyond normal feelings. But this is what I wanted. Or wanted to want. 
I didn't know what to do next, so I returned to bed and laid back down on myself. In myself, maybe. I don't know how I knew how to do this. I just did it because it felt like a natural thing to do. And that's when I woke up, I think. I should have checked the time, but it felt like as soon as I got back in, I woke up. So now, what was that? It had to have been just a dream, feeling like an out-of-body experience, right? There's no way that I actually succeeded in astral projecting myself. That's just a bunch of phony stories. If only there was a concrete proof, not just a cool dream. Let's try again, right? Right? Still microdosing and still following the same procedure to get to AP. Vibrations, check. And we're back in the deaf zone. I don't remember reading about people going deaf in it, but I guess that's my own experience. So, this time I have a plan. I want to make it to a mirror and see if I'm invisible. Maybe see-through, who knows, right? So I get up, instinctively look back, and sure enough, there I am. Even when you expect it, it still knocks the wind right out of you. You know, when you hear your own voice in a recording, it's like that, but 100 times worse. It takes all my willpower and concentration to turn myself away from myself. I turn to the doorway when I see something. It was like a shooting star. Like turning your head too quick when the light is far away. Except, there are no lights on. It was something. It was out in the hallway. I know what you're all thinking here. What kind of idiot follows the ball of light? Well, I would have said that too if I was in your chair. But then the story would be over here. Instead of just starting. So yes, I followed it. It's in the hallway on the ceiling. It's bright but not so bright as to hurt your eyes in the dark. It is a kind of warming light. It's not very large but has a larger presence. Its presence isn't seen as much as it is felt. Or just known like a basic instinct. Okay, so as I said it before, I'm no writer and I'm definitely not a poet. But I'm going to try my best to describe this feeling to you guys. But honestly, how do you even describe a feeling? You can describe the symptoms of a feeling, but not the feeling itself. Love. You feel butterflies in your stomach. But that's not love, that's a symptom. And this isn't any typical feeling. It's something beyond anything that I've ever felt before. This is going to be like describing the color green to a blind man. It's like in my dream I had another sense. A sixth sense. A soul sense, if you will. And it wasn't like I had to learn my new sense. It was natural, a basic sense. There must be some German word for this that would get lost in translation, but here goes nothing. Looking at this thing, this entity, it brought on a feeling of euphoria. It wasn't as if I was looking at it necessarily, but what was with it and what was with me? Think of all the best feelings you could imagine. A long embrace of a loved one that you miss dearly. The taste of the most savory food. That warm fuzzy feeling of being in love. An orgasm, a breath of fresh mountain air. Everything you love. Now, all of these feelings are at their pinnacle of emotion. 
maximum pleasure. They are washing over your entire body. They're not washing over your body because it isn't felt inside. It's surrounding you. But the confines of what and where you are, and what and where this feeling is, is blurry. You are this nirvana and it is you. Time is no longer existent. No thoughts are perceived. You are bliss now. And then it's gone. I didn't notice at the time, but there was a beautiful sound. Almost a hum that came with the feelings. I only noticed the absence of it. Not the actual sound at the time. The only sounds I have heard in this weird trance. My time in Nirvana must have been an instant, but it felt like a lifetime. There was an emptiness left behind. A small longing for what was there. But a lingering feeling of Zen. And the now serene silence. After basking in the calm for a while, I ventured further into the hall to see if I could feel any different energy out there where it was. There is no divine shift but my speculations that must have been right. The cat was sitting on the chair looking over towards the hallway. She wore the same expression that I knew was on my face during the experience. We had shared at that moment. I try to approach her however as she scampers off. Barely noticing my presence this time. She's zen, but too. And I'm still feeling amazing and I don't want to push it. I decide that that's enough for one night. I go back to my room, back to myself. Even after all that, I still remember to take a look at the clock, noting the time. It's 1.05am. I lay back down with me and wake up. 1.05 Crap. Oh, okay, I mean, it's not proof, but it's getting there. The next day rolls around. Oh, what's that? Who cares about the day? Just stick to the good stuff. Okay, fine. Audience gets what the audience wants. The next night, I go to bed. Follow my regime of astral projection prep and get ready for my night's adventures. There's nothing. I don't even feel the vibrations. I sleep right through the night. Okay, fine. I mean, I never expected this to be fast and this crazy anyways. I didn't really expect anything. I just wanted to believe. Two more nights go by with no dreams. Now I've done a couple of drugs in my life. Nothing too crazy. Enough to know that your first high is the one you usually chase again and again. And here I am in hindsight telling you and myself... That I was chasing that high. Then mistakes get made, excuses get made, and we tell ourselves lies, but we believe those lies. My problem is obvious though, right? I've been microdosing for what, like 7 to 8 days now. The drugs aren't having as much as an effect. Or is it effect? Sorry, I can never figure that one out. The drugs aren't hitting me as hard as they used to. Better... Well, we're going to have to kick that up a notch. Let's do 0.3 today, and that should make up for my increased tolerance. Well, buckle your seatbelts here, folks, because I managed to get a bit of vibrations. I woke up during it and barely was able to get back to sleep after. Yeah, it just wasn't happening for me. It probably was exactly what I thought all along. Just a simple trick of the psyche. It was cool, but probably nothing unexplainable.
Some fruit or Pavlov could probably explain it as simple tricks of the mind, but I still wanted to believe. And I was almost through my 10-day quarantine. You're reading this so you know that I'm about to make a bad move. You wouldn't be if I didn't. I ate the rest on the last day. I didn't measure them, but it was significantly more than before. Enough to mess me up during the day. I wasn't wrecked, but I had some good visuals. It was a fun day of staring at the walls, petting the cat and watching the grass grow. I was already pretty tired from not sleeping the night before, so I decided to call it an early night. Let's give it one more try, I mean, it doesn't even work anyways. Vibrations. Harder than they had ever been before, more like convulsions. I could feel them in my bones and even in my hair. Abruptly, they stop. What's quieter than absolute silence? Dead silence. I told you it was silent before, but this brought on a whole other level. It must be good, right? Excited, I ran out out to the hallway, the last place that I had seen one of the entities. Not to be disappointed, there's a cat in the chair looking into the living room. I emerged from the hallway and I met with the familiar feelings of Nirvana. The beautiful hum. That warm, euphoric feeling. It feels heavenly. A long-lost friend embraced again. Everything is stronger than the first time. There's not one, but three entities in the room tonight. I can't say for sure how long I stood there, but after what seemed like an eternity, I felt the energy shift. Not like before. As if all the air had left the room. As quickly as the entities were there, they were gone. I felt a pulling feeling, or was it a pushing? It was a nudge. And go back towards yourself. Quickly, it seemed to say. But there were no sights and no sounds. The push-pull feeling had subsided. But that's when sound returned. A low, guttural growl. A growl that I knew all too well. It's the cat. I instinctively go into calm the cat down mode. It's okay, kitty. And I think it's weird that I can hear myself now. My back is to the hall, trying to get the cat back from her bipolar state. Wait. My skin begins to crawl. Every hair is standing on end. The cat is beyond repair. She's backed into the corner of the cushion, screaming. I begin to turn around and there it is, the other entity. It was darker than these shadows, undefinable in shape. Almost a liquid, but still solid. It slithered and now it flowed down the hallway. It had no eyes, no mouth, but I could feel it staring at me, sensing me, hating me, enveloping me. If I had just experienced Nirvana, what's the opposite? Misery. I'll try to help. Imagine you're walking down a dark path at night. What lights there are go off and a hooded figure crosses your path. It's coming straight at you. That moment of fear and panic right when you first see it. Before you can comprehend any possibilities to escape, to fight. The peak of fear and anxiety and terror. I was stuck in that moment but not frozen. As if that moment of immense fear and panic was prolonged. From the milliseconds you would normally experience them to a full existence of terror. The wind was knocked out of me. 
My lungs sucked for air, but the only thing in the air was misery. I was drowning in misery, terror, fear, and hatred. I felt days go by, weeks. Could it have been years? All hope was gone. The thoughts of rescue weren't even possible. I had no thoughts, only misery. The cat scattered. The distraction was enough for me to pull in a breath of air. My first breath in a lifetime. I had a chance to regain some of my own thoughts. The faintest, dull gleam of hope I had felt in years. But I could still feel the entities, a presence in me, around me, everywhere. But I had some of me back now. The misery is slightly pushed out. My mind raised. I needed to get back to my room. Back to my real self. As soon as I thought it, I could feel the entity come to realization. Almost like we were sharing my thoughts the way we had just shared its misery. And that's when it spoke. Not the way that we'd speak, but I understand it all the same. I felt it, resonating inside of me. The door is open. It's blocking my way and I'll never get around it. It will consume me again if I try. I don't let long before it freezes me again. And now it knows my only escape. The entity is slithering down the hall to the bedroom. To me, to the door. The door is open. Wake up, I have to wake up. It's just a dream, wake up, before it gets to me. Wake up. And I did. 1.14 am. Heart beating like a jackhammer. Sweet mother of God. At least it was all just dreams and there's nothing to worry about. I woke up. I didn't project, it was a dream that I woke up from. No, a nightmare, but it's all over. There is no such thing as astral projection. I wanted to believe, but it was just stories. But what about the cat? That's a weird coincidence. She sees them too now. I'm just wanting to believe. It's just a cat being a cat and she's bipolar. The fall had caused her to... The door is open. I hear it or do I feel it? The sound is nowhere and everywhere. The door is open. It resonates inside of me, all around me. I see it. I feel it. It's not English, it's not even words, but I understand it. I'm still dreaming. I'll wake up from this one too. That was 143 hours ago. I never went back to my body from the projection. I never closed the door. I don't know how to. Where will sleep put me? Back in the living room where I was when I woke up. Will that leave my body defenseless? I haven't found the cat. She must have fled from the house. I found a hole in a screen window. A perfect cutout for a cat like in the cartoons. Okay, not really like that, but I still have some humanity left in me to make a joke. She must not be used to his presence, lasting longer than a couple of seconds and couldn't take it. Still feels it here with me. A part of me. The door is open. Has the voice in my head changed? It doesn't sound the same. Is it these same voices before? Are there others with it now? Waiting for my vessel to be empty. 
What will happen to me when they take my spot? Maybe I'll spend it in Nirvana. Or maybe we will both be in me. They're too strong and they thrive off of misery. They'll suffocate me in here. Maybe that's what psychopaths are. Just people who opened the door and didn't know how to close it. Is that what will become of me? I'm too tired to think of a way out. I believe now. I want to not believe, but now I'm stuck with the burden of proof. The door is open. Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to talk about this week's sponsor, ShipStation. If you have an online storefront, 2022 is likely going to be very kind to you. More people are shopping online than ever before, but that also means a lot of orders coming in, and a lot of orders that you'll need to ship out fast. That's where ShipStation comes in. They help streamline the entire process and make sure your products reach their destination as quickly, efficiently, and cost-effectively as possible. ShipStation has the benefits of importing orders from any sales channel, shipping with any carrier, access to exclusive discounted shipping rates, and the ability to automate pretty much any shipping task, allowing you to spend a lot less time on shipping and a lot more time on growing your business. I know for me, personally, ShipStation has been a dream. It allows me to really focus less on the hassle of running an online storefront and focus more on keeping the stories and the content flowing to you. Ship more in less time. Just use my offer code of Mr. Creeps to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in Mr. Creeps. That's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code Mr. Creeps. Make ship happen. I am a zoologist and I found something strange in northern Alaska. Written by Horror Queen 1212. My name is Dr. Nigel Parker, and I'm a part of a trio of zoologists focusing on fieldwork. With me is Dr. Gemma Stone. You cannot find a more brilliant scientist if you tried. There is also Dr. Travis Ludwig, a silly guy but also quite brilliant. We travel the globe investigating complaints of deviant animal behavior. Our specialty, wolves. Easily one of the most misunderstood animals on the planet. Most people think of wolves as bloodthirsty killing machines, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. They are extraordinary animals with complex pack dynamics. And most importantly, they do not hunt humans. Laws in many regions prohibited the hunting of wolves. But every once in a while, wolves would attack a human. The people of the surrounding area would demand that the wolves would be put down, but needed to go through the proper channels, so that's where my team comes in. We would evaluate the targeted packs and see if putting them down was acceptable. So far, we have found a lot of human problems opposed to wolf problems. We saw cases where parents let their young children wander unsupervised into the wilderness, where they would stumble upon a den of pups. They would want to play with them, 
which would result in the wrath of the mother wolf. We found a subpar fencing around farms where wolves would attack cattle or chickens. The farmers were instructed to build better protective barriers and of course, the attacks would stop. We had yet to find these bloodthirsty evil wolves that we were always promised. Instead, we found wild animals being wild animals. Educating the humans tended to be the best defense. This current call was a little strange. We were in a small town in northern Alaska, and the people were terrified. A large portion of the population had abandoned their homes and left the town to stay with relatives. Those that had nowhere to go had boarded up their windows and doors. The report given to us on the journey there said that the wolves of the area had been attacking and even killing people unprovoked. There were even sworn cases of wolves breaking down doors to get into houses. None of this made sense. Travis suggested that we were dealing with a high level of hysteria, and the claims were being blown out of proportion, so Gemma and I agreed. We had never heard of wolves acting this way. Still, we tried to keep an open mind as going in with biases went against the scientific method. We were just about to arrive in the town. Signing out, Nigel. Log 2 We have been stationed in one of the abandoned homes for a couple of days now. It's a two-story home. It's quite nice. The snow is definitely falling, leaving quite the chill in the air. So far, there have been no signs of any wolves. We still came prepared with tranquilizer dart guns on the off chance of a confrontation. We also have lots of canned food to keep us satiated. Signing out, Nigel. Log 3. I'm in shock. Travis is dead. We were outside when the wolves came like a swarm. We had our guns on us at all times, but when we shot at the wolves, it didn't seem to do anything. We ran back into the house, but a gray wolf had grabbed Travis by the leg. He was yanked down and torn apart. Oh, the screams. I can't get the screams out of my head. They were screams of pain, screams of death. We ran inside and grabbed our things, ready to make a run to the car, but to our dismay, the wolves did not leave, well, not all of them. We could count to five that seemed to just be waiting on us. One was even laying in the hood of the car, and we were trapped. We could see Travis's mangled body in the snow, limbs barely holding onto his torso. We were just thankful that his face was looking in the opposite direction, so we couldn't see the look of horror that had to be on it. When we got busy pulling floorboards up into barricading the doors and the windows as best as we could. We tried calling for help, but there was no reception. We just sat in silence after that. Gemma broke the silence suddenly when she said, They're aggressive. She had a look of deep thought on her face. Yeah, no crap, I said sarcastically. No, think about it, she said. When they killed Travis... I don't want to talk about this, I interrupted. Oh, too bad, she snapped. When they killed Travis, they ripped him apart, but then what did they do? They set their sights on us, I said, still not seeing her point. Exactly. They left the body alone and they didn't eat him. They aren't hunting for food. Understanding was dawning on me, 
well then why attack at all? They wouldn't have felt threatened as they came after us. They killed for the sake of killing. She finished my thought. That doesn't make any sense, I said. Wolves don't do that. There's a fact that we're not looking at. Certain diseases in humans can cause heightened levels of adrenaline. I think that these wolves are sick and that it's leading to this odd behavior. It would explain why our tranks didn't work. We need to get back to the lab and return with a more prepared team to get some DNA samples and see what's causing this behavior. One problem with your plan, I said. How are we getting out of here? Log 4 It's been two weeks and the wolves haven't left. We've noticed that they've been taking shifts so that they can be well rested. They've tried breaking in on multiple occasions but the barricades have stayed firm. Still, a new danger has arrived. Hunger. We are running out of food. We now have a choice. Starve or take our chances with the wolves. We need to make a break for it, Gemma argued. Before we lose our strength, we have a chance of surviving the pack. We have no chance surviving starvation. I was in agreement, but we needed a plan. We needed to just make it to the car, but we need protection. We went into the kitchen where we found the biggest knives that we could find. Next, we broke off the banister, creating two large rods. We found duct tape and attached the knives to the rods. And there we had it. DIY spears. Gemma and I looked at each other. This was our only chance. As slim as it was, and we had to take it. I write this log knowing that it may be my last. If you don't hear from me again, then you know. Well, you just know. Hoping this isn't my last goodbye. Update. New log. My name is Dr. Garrett Parker. I'm the younger brother of the late Nigel Parker. Growing up, Nigel and I always had a love for animals, and it transcended into our careers. Nigel became a zoologist and I became a veterinarian. I am currently the head of veterinarian at the Los Alamitos Zoo in California. Nigel and I always used to debate about who had the cooler job. He argued that his job was better because he got to travel around the world as saving wildlife. I argued that I had the better job because I got to work one-on-one -on -one with some of the world's most exotic animals and never had to leave the comforts of a sunny California. God, I was going to miss those arguments. Now my brother was gone. He had went on an expedition with two of his colleagues and never came back. Only Dr. Gemma Stone had survived the expedition, and the story she told would haunt me forever. We had almost fought our way to the car when a particularly large wolf lunged at me. She had recalled tearfully. Nigel stabbed the wolf in its side, which saved me, but it left him wide open for another wolf to lunge at him. There was so much blood and I realized that the wolf had gone for the throat. The look in Nigel's eyes screamed, Go! I made it to the car and drove as quickly as I could, leaving the wolves and Nigel's body behind. Log 2 After Nigel's funeral, Gemma reached out to me and told me about the oddly aggressive behaviors of the wolves. By her description, I had to agree that something was off with it. 
Her hypothesis that the wolf suffered from some sort of ailment did fit, and I was determined to get to the bottom of this. Gemma had originally contacted me so I could suggest a colleague to start a study on these wolves, but that wasn't going to happen. I was going to be handling this myself. I needed to know why my brother was dead, and at the risk of bragging, I am one of the best in my field. I set up a task force equipped to handle the situation. Their objective was to bring one of the wolves to me. I wanted a full workup on this animal that could only be done with a 24-hour observation. I prescribed much stronger tranquilizers and the team was armored and tasked with a variety of weapons. It took a week, but a wolf was captured with a minimal injury to the team. The wolf was an adult male with white and gray fur. We named him Vlad after Vlad the Impaler due to his bloodthirsty nature. I was informed that even with the nearly lethal dosage of the trank, he still remained conscious, though a little bit loopy. At first, he was quite aggressive when he had arrived at the lab, lunging at the bars of his cage. Whether this was his normal behavior or reaction to his change of scenery was yet unknown. A noose-like apparatus with a metal rod was used to hold him down, as a blood sample was taken. I wanted everything looked at. It would take a couple of days before the blood panel came back. It was getting later in the day and it was time to feed Vlad. The zoo had a specially formulized kibble for wolves in observation. The bull was pushed into his cage. Don't worry about his appetite, as he is unlikely to eat for a while. I told my team. Vlad has never seen kibble and as such won't immediately recognize it as food. I finished off slowly. The wolf hadn't so much as sniffed the food before digging in. It was as if he ate kibble every day. Just another oddity to add to Vlad's list. Hopefully the blood test would shine some light on Vlad's behaviors. Log 3 Vlad was nothing like we thought he would be. I had worked with wolves before and it was apparent that Vlad was much more docile than the average wolf. It contradicted his behavior in the wild. Gemma was in the lab when the blood test came back and the results were shocking. Vlad's hormonal levels were all normal. He did not have adrenaline spikes. His white blood cell count was normal, indicating that he wasn't or hadn't been fighting off any form of infection. The disease panel came up clear. This was a perfectly healthy wolf. I was beginning to think the group had captured the only healthy wolf in the pack. When I flipped to the last page of the report, I stared in shock. A drug panel found that he had tested positive for dryptofam. I said in shock. Dryptofam, Gemma replied. She knew what it was and we both did it was a synthetic trank blocker used to wake large animals up after surgeries. Well, this explains his reaction, or the lack thereof, to the guns that we used, I said. Nausea was coming over me as a disturbing truth was making itself known. This wolf was raised by a human, I said. It's the only thing that makes any sense. It explains why he's been so docile. It explains his familiarity with kibble. Not to mention the drugs. But then why attack humans when in his pack? Wouldn't he be more comfortable with humans? Gemma asked. 
Not of the person who trained him didn't want him to be. Whoever raised him trained him to hunt humans, I continued. Oh, we're looking at a serial killer. Log 4. Behavioral analyst from the FBI had taken over my lab. When I first had contacted the FBI, they thought that this was all a joke. A killer using wolves to do its work. They thought that I was full of it. Thankfully, I came across Agent Granger and he was a respected, reasonable man who had seen more than anyone should. He kept me on as an expert of wildlife. Agent Granger started the investigation by seeing if there were any non-wolf-related deaths that seemed strange in and around the small Alaskan town. A man doesn't just start raising wolves to kill people without using another method first. He needs a payoff, and there are hundreds of ways that you could get it quicker than raising a wolf pup and training it to kill, Granger said. At first glance, they didn't see anything abnormal, until they looked about 15 years in the past. The town had been plagued by a mysterious killer who would stab his victims. He seemed to prefer adult women, but wasn't above killing anyone really. He had quite the rare pathology, whoever he was. His reign of terror lasted for eight years, only to abruptly stop. It was most likely that he had died. A man this sick doesn't just stop if he has any choice. This was the only abnormality in and around that town in over 50 years. Agent Granger was certain that the two cases were connected. The main question was, how? Log 5 Agent Granger found the smoking gun, so to speak. A couple of miles away from the town was an old coal mine. Part of the mine had collapsed, killing three and seriously injuring one. And the mine was closed down. Why this was important was because this accident had happened exactly 15 years ago, right when the killings had stopped. It would make sense that one of the deceased men had been the murderer. To try to pinpoint which one of the men was the killer, the agent contacted the only surviving victim of the mine collapse. His name was Arthur Brown, and he invited us into his home. He lived a couple of miles away from the town in a small cabin. Granger and I rode together to the small dwelling. Mr. Brown greeted us kindly. He was paralyzed from the waist down due to the accident. We walked up the ramp to his porch and went into his house. Mr. Brown was in his 70s. He had warm brown eyes and a kind smile. What little hair he had still was as white as the snow surrounding his house. Oh, sorry if this place is messy, he said. My wife Loretta kept things clean, but she died almost 25 years ago. And I never truly got as good as she was at keeping the clutter at bay. He looked sad. Oh, she was my rock. The absolute best thing in my whole life. She died of a heart condition when I was still mining at the Williams Mine. This was before the collapse. He rambled. It was clear that he wasn't used to company. He probably wanted to share all his life with anyone that would listen. Mr. Brown, the agent cut in gently. Uh, we're sorry to bother you, but we've come looking for information about the murders that span from 23 to 15 years ago. Do you recall them? Oh, yes. Terrible. It was as if I heard another horror story from one of my mining buddies every week, he stated. Well, that's just it. Granger spoke gingerly. 
We have a suspicion that one of your fellow miners was of the cause of all that horror. Mr. Brown looked aghast. Oh, you must be mistaken. We miners might have looked tough back in our prime, but we never heard a fly. These were good men. Family men. He defended desperately. Well, we have no doubt that they were great men. Granger appeased, but please think. Three men died in that accident. Out of those men, did any of them ever strike you as odd? Oh, no, no. Well, there was Barry, Barry Larson, Mr. Brown clarified. He was always quiet, but sometimes he... Oh, sir, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Please, Granger said firmly. This is important. Well, Mr. Brown said, sometimes old Barry would turn right mean. He had a temper problem. He would punch things in anger. His knuckles were often bruised or cut up. Does Mr. Larson have any living kin? Why, yes, I think so. He had a brother who also worked in the mines. Um, John was his name. Oh, he and Barry had the same problem with anger. I'd be careful knocking on John's door. Log 6 Agent Granger and I were coming to the same conclusion. John was our person of interest. Granger wanted a question but felt that it wouldn't be safe for me to come along. Mr. Brown offered for me to stay the night. He had a spare bedroom and, quite frankly, it was hard to say no to the sweet old man. I agreed and he acted as if it was the greatest news he had ever heard. Granger went out of his way and Mr. Brown led me to the spare bedroom. It was cozy with a quilt covered bed and a bookcase filled with books. I'll let you get comfortable. How about I put in some tea? It always warms me up. Mr. Brown offered. Yeah, thank you. I obliged and he wheeled off, leaving me into the room. I went to the bookcase, having a feeling that I would be reading that night since I noted the absence of a TV. I looked at the books and my skin went cold. Most of them had a similar title. How to Train Your Dog Log 7 I am alone in a cabin with a deranged serial killer. What do I do? I could make a run for it, but he has wolves that are trained to hunt down humans. I go for my phone to call Agent Granger. No signal. Gemma had warned me about this. T's ready. I nearly jumped out of my skin at the sound of Mr. Brown's voice. He was in the doorway with a platter in his lap with two cups of tea and some sugar. My mind was racing. He didn't know that. I knew he was the killer. I needed to act normal. The big question I had was, should I take the tea? Poisoning me would do no good since he was trying to look innocent. And the tea was probably safe. At the same time, this man was deranged and I didn't feel comfortable with the odds of probably... I'm actually not feeling so good. I think I might take a nap, I said. No, the tea will help you relax, he replied. Oh, no, that's okay, I said. He looked very confused. That's when I made the dumbest decision of my life. I glanced at the bookshelf. I didn't mean to, but I couldn't undo it. Mr. Brown's face changed to one of a grim understanding. He moved his torso forward and away from his wheelchair and reached behind his back before grabbing a shotgun. My blood ran cold. You're a smart one, you know. 
Now I have to get rid of you before your agent friend gets back. I want you to put your hands on your head. We're headed for the mines. The mines, I questioned. It's where I keep the wolves, he said with a smile. My heart jolted. I was going to die just like Nigel. Panic was making everything spin. Put the gun down. Had I imagined the voice, it sounded like Agent Granger. I looked up and sure enough, there is Granger with a gun of his own aimed at the back of Mr. Brown's head. The old man's smile faltered as he realized that he was caught. How did you know? He asked. Don't trust me, there'll be plenty of time for talking, but first, you're going to put that gun down. Mr. Brown didn't move. You know, Granger said in a steely voice, we're not so different, you and I. We have both killed before, and we both are just fine doing it again. I'll say it one more time, and then I shoot. Put the gun down. Mr. Brown hesitated before finally listening. The relief I felt was overwhelming. Granger coughed Mr. Brown's hands behind his wheelchair. Case solved. Log 8. Agent Granger had driven halfway to question the new suspect when the reality of who was really to blame dawned on him. Granger explained to me how he realized that Brown was the culprit. It was two things actually. The first thing was that none of his windows and doors were boarded like everyone else's. He wasn't afraid of the wolves. Second, the death of Mrs. Brown coincided with the beginning of the killings all those years ago. The interrogation of Arthur Brown helped explain this in further detail. Loretta was my rock, Mr. Brown had said. My voice had the urge to kill, but there was something about it that kept it at bay. I wasn't willing to do anything to risk screwing up what we had. And then she was gone. My everything was gone, and I had no reason to hold back anymore. He continued. I killed so many, and I loved it. It was euphoric. I carried on for eight years until that mine collapsed and left me in this chair, and I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't wrestle anyone to the ground. I couldn't flee the scene. I thought that it was all over. And then one day, I saw a wolf that had obviously just killed its prey. Blood was dripping from its muzzle, and it gave me an idea. So I set up traps, got myself a male and a female, and waited for them to breed. They had five pups, and I had five weapons that I kept breeding the wolves all while training them. I killed the original two, only leaving wolves who knew me as their alpha. He was so smug, it was obvious that he was impressed with himself. I trained them to knock down doors, and I trained them to kill. Finally, I had a pack of killer wolves 100% devoted to me, and I set them loose. This chair couldn't stop me. Nothing could stop me. Well, I stopped you, was all that Agent Granger said before leaving the man alone in the interrogation room. Log 9 I observed Brown's wolves for quite a long time. Some of the more docile ones, like Vlad, were sent to different zoos and sanctuaries. The untrained pups were taught the fundamental ways of survival and released back into the wild. The rest of them sadly had to be put down. Animals I get, even the most terrifying of beasts have a sanity about them. Humans I will never understand. They are the true beasts in this world. I went back home and on with my life. I did it, Nigel. 
Now I hope you can rest in peace. I'm the groundskeeper at one of Ireland's oldest graveyards. This time of year, the locals get a little restless. Written by Lighting Nations. This time of year, trouble lurks in the shadow of my graveyard. It's because of the winter holidays, you see. Bereaved families come to visit. Their outpouring of emotion gets the locals all riled up. And then anyone caught here after sundown is liable to have an encounter. That's what happened with poor Mrs. O'Reilly. I spotted her through the window of my shack, wandering past a row of headstones from the 90s. There was a dry winter breeze and mist so thick that you couldn't see your own shoes. Definitely not a night you wanted to get stuck outside. I pulled on my raincoat and gloves and caught up to her on the flank of a steep hill. Close to a headstone dated October 13th, 1997. Good evening, I said. She shrieked and spun around. I leaned back. Didn't mean to startle you. I'm Sean, the groundskeeper here. She put a hand to her chest and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. You scared the absolute bejesus out of me. My apologies. Wind hissed through the crooked branches of skeletal trees on either side of us. I looked around and then said, That breeze must be cutting you to the bone. What are you doing out here at this hour? Well, I'm afraid that I lost my bearings. I can't even remember which way I came. She whipped her head from side to side. It feels like I've been going in circles. I really need to get home to my daughter. She must be worried sick. I had to get the lady inside before the situation became dangerous. Not to worry, come with me and I'll take you over to the gate. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you, mister. Her voice trailed off, waiting for me to fill in the rest. Donnelly, but you can call me Sean. I tip my cap. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Donnelly. The path curved in a lazy S-shape. It was a narrow lane with brambles and bushes to the left and a row of headstones on the right. How long have you worked here? She asked and then breathed into her cupped hands. Coming up on 25 years. And does it ever bother you? What? She gestured toward a nearby headstone. Being so close to the, you know... I would imagine you've had a few frights over the years. Only when I get my paycheck. She chuckled. It's funny. I never thought of myself as superstitious. But as soon as the sun went down, I started picturing corpses springing out of their graves. I half expected a rotted hand to snatch my ankle. When that happens, it's best to bash him with a shovel. Usually sends him right back to sleep. She stared at me. I'm kidding, kidding. No, oh, she forced a laugh. Of course. Up ahead, toward the end of a slope, lay my cabin. Mr. Donnelly, is it much farther? She asked apprehensively. She had realized that we weren't headed for the gate. I really should be getting home. The gate's locked and my keys are inside. 
It won't be but a moment, grab it um. And come on in, Mary. It'll give you a chance to heat up. I prefer Mrs. Aurea. She made a sour face. Wait. How do you know my name is Mary? I cleared my throat and said, Oh, you must have mentioned it at the top of the hill. I kicked my feet clean against the welcome mat and quickly ushered her through the door. My shack was built around a single room which doubled as a lounge and kitchen. Above our heads, moss flapped around a bare bulb. I gestured toward a cushioned armchair next to the fireplace and said, Have a seat and get that chill out of your bones. You're a true gentleman. I almost caught my death out there. Well, you're in the best place for it, she chuckled. Oh yes, very good. After whipping off my coat, I plopped down at the table and slid on my reading glasses. Do you have any children, Mr. Donnelly? Two sons, both grown and still asking for money. I rummaged through the desk drawers. Mr. Donnelly, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but I really am in a hurry. Oh, of course. Give me just a moment and I'll dig out those keys. They're around here somewhere. I propped an iPad up on the table. What on earth is that thing? She asked. Oh, it's a computer. I use it for my day-to-day tasks. It was a bloody nightmare to get grips with, but it's easier than keeping track of endless paperwork. Ah, she said in a way that indicated she hadn't really understood. For the next few minutes, I wrestled with the device. Something about mandatory updates. Mr. Donnelly, it's been a real pleasure, but I would really like to... It won't be a minute. Mr. Donnelly, she said sharply. The bare bulb brightened and dimmed. To my left, the window above the sink rattled in its housing. I'm grateful for your hospitality, but my daughter is expecting me home. I'd appreciate it if you could take me to the exit now. Outside, the wind picked up and rain blew sideways against the shack, which suddenly felt very, very cramped. My lips turned bone dry. I had expected to have things ready by now. Of course, but how about a cup of tea first? No, she said firmly. I've waited long enough. I had hoped you'd be concerned with seeing me home, but clearly you're more preoccupied with your little... She fumbled for the right word. Gizmo. Around the room, furniture began to scrape roughly across the floor, and the shadows thrown by the fire became long and distorted. I quietly said, If you could just... She stood from the chair. Now, show me to the exit right now. Dang, iPad still wouldn't work. I had planned to have everything laid out by now. The next part was so much simpler with visual aids. As Mrs. O'Reilly stepped forward, the air became a little too raw, a little too bitter, and the suffocating space filled with the sickening scent of decay. I said, Oh, just finishing some paperwork, then I'll get you home to Molly. She screwed up her face. Home to... How did you... Who told you? Suddenly my breath began missing up and the window had frosted over. Mr. Donnelly, what is going on? 
Her voice didn't come from her mouth anymore. It came from all around the room. As she took another step forward, yellow fluid seeped out of her ear onto the floorboards and blood bubbled from her mouth. Tell me how you know about Molly. A jagged portion of collarbone jutted from her neck and her left shoulder twisted sideways. How did you know my name? Now I could see gray brain matter through a fracture in her skull. To heck with the iPad, I thought. We'll do this the old-fashioned way. At the far side of the room, the door to my bedroom stood open. I made a desperate break for it. Tell me what's going on, she screamed. And as she did throughout the shack, wooden cupboards crashed open and shut. Porcelain plates exploded and metal pot drums rolled across the counter. I closed and locked the door behind me, even though doing so offered zero protection. I reached beneath the bed and pulled out a photo album, my stiff joints creaking with age. As I frantically flicked through the pages, the door burst open. There is no Mrs. O'Reilly anymore, just disturbing riplets of human features. A swollen eye, a broken mouth, and shattered legs that looked as though they could barely support the warped figure. The entity seeped into the room, radiating malevolence, radiating hatred. A smell came with it, a putrid stench of death that engulfed both my nostrils and made me lightheaded. I held up the album and shouted, Your daughter is perfectly safe, look. I stood the bones in my spine cracking, and I pushed out the hefty book. I promise that I'll explain everything. There's no reason to panic. The photo showed a teenage girl at school, celebrating her birthday, acting in a school play. I could almost make out Mrs. O'Reilly's face as she said, That's not Molly. There was profound anger in the voice. Gasping for air, I said, It is. It's Molly all grown up. Impossible. Plaster peeled off the walls. You're lying. Molly, she's nine years old. No, she was a nine years old the day that you died. Fragments of Mrs. O'Reilly reemerged, but her lifeless features twitched in a way that made me uncertain whether the danger had passed. I said, it happened years ago. A car accident. You were killed, but your family survived. I've got the article right here. Look. Pasted onto the next page was a newspaper clipping which read, Mother of one killed in motor collision. The time of the accident was 1234, October 13th, 1997. I... I remember a crash. It wasn't a statement, more like a question. The entity became a severely injured Mrs. O'Reilly again. I remember looking up at a dashboard with glass in my hair. I'm afraid that's the accident which ended your life, Mrs. O'Reilly. It says so right here. She furiously shook her head and turned away, her chest moving up and down in staggered heaves. No, no! A nearby shelf collapsed, sending books scattering across the floor. Just read this, please. As she reluctantly studied the article, 
I saw her struggle to accept the horrifying revelation. This is Molly, I said, flicking through the album. The girl in the pictures went from teen to young adult to university graduate. Surely you see the resemblance. Try to remember Mrs. O'Reilly. From her expression, it was clear that, little by little, she was beginning to believe me. She swallowed a lump in her throat. My daughter graduated. First in the family, I said. She became a nurse. Where is she now? And my husband? What happened to him? Come with me. I led her back into the lounge where she hovered next to the fireplace. I loaded an obituary from a local news site on the iPad. Eleven after the accident, your husband took a heart attack and passed on at age of 42. A look of immense grief flashed across her face. For a moment, the roof and all my furniture clattered. I said, Molly took it hard. In the end, she decided to leave Ireland. Too many bad memories, I imagine. She immigrated to Australia. I loaded pictures of Molly on the iPad and turned it towards Mrs. O'Reilly, who now resembled her former, uninjured self. Over there, she met a Welsh fella, a bricklayer. Makes good money. The two of them got hitched and had three children, two boys and a girl. A family photo done by the beach appeared on the screen. Mrs. O'Reilly put a hand to her mouth, her eyes swelling with tears. The little girl looks so like Molly, she said, wistfully studying the image. She surely does, and you'll never guess what they named her. Mrs. O'Reilly's eyes found mine. Mary. She closed her eyes and smiled. Gently, she placed a hand over her heart and then, in a choked up voice, said, Is there any way that I could meet them? Perhaps you mind to bring my family here. Oh, I sincerely wish that I could, I replied. But the only reason we're really having this conversation is because I spent half my life surrounded by the dead. Most folks wouldn't even notice you, unless you caused trouble again, that is. Although, I would kindly ask for you to refrain from doing that. I gestured around the room, toward my furniture, most of which was either broken or flipped upside down. Of course, she said, her tone a little apologetic. I flicked through the photos again, giving her ample time to study each one. Outside, the wind, soft and cold, stirred the branches that grew against the roof. So, Mr. Donnelly, what happens now? Well, that's up to you. A lot of spirits who died under tragic circumstances tend to hang about. They feel like they've got unfinished business and can't move on, and their souls linger here, only vaguely aware of their surroundings until they pull themselves together, like you just did, up by your headstone. When spirits awaken after a long time, they're a little disoriented, and those who get distressed become troublesome. That's where I come in to help calm them down. Some hang on about until they're confident their loved ones are going to be okay. Others refuse to move on until everyone they knew in life has too. That decision is entirely yours. You say move on. 
What does that mean exactly? Tears slid down her cheeks. Afraid I haven't the foggiest. I'm just the groundskeeper. I keep things tidy on this side. Whatever happens next is above my pay grade. Already, her body had begun to fade. I could see the crackle of the fire behind her through her. She leaned forward like an eager child about to share a great secret. Thank you, Sean. I greatly appreciate your help. It was my pleasure, Mrs. O'Reilly. Please, uh, call me Mary. I smiled. She said, I hope we meet again someday. I'll look forward to it. I replied and gave her a nod. And with that, she was gone. Today's episode of Creepscast is also sponsored by HelloFresh. The new year is a great time to focus on what's important to you. Whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness, HelloFresh is here to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm-fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience without skimping on quality. Skip the trip to the grocery store, saving you the wait and long holiday lines and ensuring that you don't waste money on excess food. I've been absolutely loving my HelloFresh subscription for a while now. Just last night, I whipped up some honey garlic chicken that was on this week's menu. And wow, it was honestly better than most restaurants that I've ordered chicken at. It was seriously delicious. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16 and use code MrCreeps16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16. Use code MrCreeps16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Thanks again to HelloFresh. America's number one meal kit. There's something haunting the Eastern European countryside. Don't let it see you. Written by Red Hot Owl. For those not accustomed to it, life in rural Eastern Europe can feel very lonely and isolating. I've spent all of my teenage life and most of my childhood in London, but recently, about a year ago, we were forced to move back to the old country due to financial reasons. I couldn't have been older than three or four when we first transitioned to the UK, so my memories of my hometown were foggy at best. An old apartment complex in the middle of an industrial district isn't exactly the most scenic place to grow up either, but though definitely had rabbit times, it always felt alive. There was always something to do, and more interesting parts of town were just a short bus ride away. Here, there were only grasslands stretching for miles in whichever direction I look, not to mention the four-hour drive between me and the nearest city, and for the record, I don't have a license. Most of my days out here are spent helping my dad trying to find a decent internet connection, which is close to impossible. You have no idea how many attempts it took to post this. I've never been much of an extrovert, but having nobody to talk or relate to it does take a toll on you. 
The local population is primarily comprised of people past their 60s. The last family with a kid closer to my age had apparently moved nearly a decade ago, which yeah, you can definitely see why. Unfortunately, as you probably already guessed, boredom hasn't been the worst thing that I've had to contend with, not even close. I remember when I first saw her. It was still technically summer at the time, so evenings were tolerable, if not exactly warm. Dad and I were taking a walk along the dirt road that connects the village to the nearest highway. He was talking about how I just needed to hold out for a few more years, and that we would be able to move again once we had saved enough money. The prospect of spending literal years trapped in some desolate hamlet in the middle of nowhere isn't exactly assuring, but with him getting older and mom's disabilities, I can't abandon them either. They are by no means perfect parents, but they've always tried their best and I appreciate them for it. I remember looking over at my father, only to notice something in the distance past his shoulder. I strained my eyes. The gloom was far too dense to fully penetrate, but I could definitely distinguish the outline of someone standing amidst the tall grass, towering above it. The figure was that of a woman, a very tall and lanky woman. Her proportions were impossible, but they were intimidating especially coupled with the slanted stance and the fact that she stood just there, swaying like a willow in a windstorm. Dad glanced over his shoulder as well, but then just looked back at me confused. What is it? he asked. I was so taken aback by the question that I didn't know how to respond. How did he miss the giant woman standing in the middle of the field directly behind him? I watched as the imposing silhouette suddenly began to descend, almost as if being swallowed by the earth itself, before disappearing beneath the grass entirely. Once I had finally managed to articulate what I had seen, Dad had cut our walk short and we jogged home. There is nobody that lives here that even comes close to matching that description, but it certainly wasn't beyond the realm of possibility that some creepy tall woman was wandering these steps at night. Weirdos aren't exclusive to the big city, you know. I felt nervous whenever I had to go out for the next few days, but the odd encounter eventually slipped my mind. Neither of us ever told mom since we didn't want her to blow the whole thing out of proportion, and besides, she rarely left the house anyway. I had all but forgotten about the woman and the stab. That is, until about a week or so later, we were called over by an old couple that lives at the edge of town, conveniently right by that same road. Now the request wasn't anything out of the ordinary, when one of their goats had croaked during the night. Since both of them were in their 80s and they needed our help to drag it out of the pen, we did as they asked and we were rewarded for our efforts with coffee and toast. It was then that the wife said something to me that I'll never forget. I'll do my best to translate it. This old coot doesn't believe me, but I swear in our grandchildren's lives that I saw something walking down the old path before I went to bed last night. At first I thought it could have been you, but the girl was much, much taller. The tallest woman that I've ever seen. The way she walked was odd too, like she was hurt, limping her way down to town. 
Dad and I looked at each other from across the table. He chimed in on my behalf. What do you think it could have been? In hindsight, I'm thankful that he stopped me from confessing that I had seen the woman too. We would have likely been accused of leading her back to the settlement. As I was soon about to find out, folk around these parts love having someone else to blame for their misfortunes. I don't know, she's not from around here and that's for sure. If you ask me, she's probably the reason her animals keep dying. Outsiders have always been a bad omen. Ma, be quiet, you hag. The man and his daughter aren't here to listen to your crazy stories. The husband finally had a chance to intervene, which, after some more back and forth, devolved into a typical domestic dispute. We thanked the elderly couple for their hospitality and promptly excused ourselves, though I doubt either of them noticed. Over the next several weeks, more and more animals kept turning up dead. The closest thing that we have to a vet couldn't determine a cause. Goats, sheep, pigs, cattle, even dogs. Animals that looked completely healthy one day were gone the next. One day, my parents woke up to find a coop filled with dead chickens. There was nothing wrong with them as far as any of us could tell. They just lie there motionless while the ones still alive packed it carelessly around them. There was talk of a plague, but the idea was it quickly brushed aside. What sort of plague kills overnight with no preceding symptoms? It was almost as if they were being poisoned, which briefly became the leading theory. That was until the start of October when a shepherd found something in the small birch grove that borders the town. Concealed between the trees was this crude arrangement of rocks. They were obviously placed there on purpose, and overlooking them was this cross between a scarecrow and a humanly-sized effigy made of twigs. It was a rusted cowbell dangling from its neck and a ram skull for a head. There was something about the way that it just stood there, arms raised, praising something that none of us could see. It made me feel vulnerable, tiny, like there was this benevolent forest perpetually looming above us. Witchcraft, somebody yelled. We've been cursed, spurted another. We scattered the rocks and burned the idol the same day. As I watched it get swallowed by the flames, I couldn't help but feel that this was what the one who placed it there intended. I still think that this is the exact moment we unknowingly doomed ourselves, and that everything that follows could have been prevented. It's too late now, though. Things only got worse as time went on. More animals kept dropping dead for no discernible reason, and the bodies were piling up. And we couldn't even use the meat, as we still feared that it might have somehow been tainted. So we ended up just burying them outside of town. It was when the crops, our main source of income and food, started withering, that things truly got desperate. Everyone became convinced that there was a witch among us. With my family being the most recent addition to the community, we were obviously the first to fall under scrutiny. Thankfully, my dad had managed to appease the growing mob by pointing out that this supposed curse had severely impacted our livelihood as well. It made no sense that we would be the ones responsible. And so, accusations started getting levied against the next most plausible candidate. I won't be using her real name out of respect for the poor woman. 
so I'll just refer to her as Maria. Maria was about the same age as my mother, maybe slightly older. Only she had never married and nor had any kids of her own. I never really got a clear answer as to why and I'm not about to start speculating. All you need to know is that she had been living in relative solitude for years, which made her a prime suspect in the eyes of the traditionalist populace. Adding to it was the fact that her livestock had overall been spared, though she wasn't even the sole outlier in that regard. There is no doubt in my mind that her targeting was largely the result of pre-existing prejudice, and things were about to get a whole lot worse for her. Every day, I would walk by her house and see a fresh batch of crosses carved into her door. People called her all kinds of names whenever they saw her in public. One time, I even witnessed several women throw rocks at her, which the men eagerly encouraged. You might be wondering why these saner among us didn't do anything to help. The unfortunate truth is that times were already tough and nobody wanted to risk getting themselves or their loved ones implicated by proxy. Also, good luck getting any outside authorities to intervene. Nothing short of a murder would ever convince an officer to come all the way out here. And it just so happens, that's exactly what it took. Time had been somewhat of a blur since the day I found her. I remember that it had snowed the previous night. Everything was covered in this crisp sheet of white. I was probably on my way to the only general store that there is here. It was far too cold for a casual stroll. Suddenly, I heard the distinct intermittent jingling of what sounded like a cowbell coming from somewhere nearby. As I circled past Maria's homestead like I've always done, I saw her, displayed at the foot of her own doorstep like some perverse art exhibit. Her partially stripped body was tied to a fence post, swollen and bruised beyond recognition. Frost clung to her dark hair as it flapped in the freezing wind, obscuring disfigured features that hardly resembled a face anymore. And there it was. The same cowbell that we had found around the idol's neck now hung from hers, attached to a hoop of rope and barbed wire, knocking about by the wind. I was so thoroughly desensitized by that point that I just turned around and went home. I didn't even tell my parents. Somebody did eventually call the police, but nothing really came out of it. There was an investigation, suspects were questioned, but it ultimately got swept under the rug. Maria didn't have any relatives or friends that were willing to pursue the matter further, so it was just sort of forgotten about by the time Christmas had rolled around. People do have their suspicions about who could have done it, of course. It is generally assumed to have been the shepherd, with the help of a few of his drinking buddies, since he's always been Maria's most outspoken detractor, even before any of this cursed stuff had happened. The thing is, I don't think he did it. There's a detail that I've been deliberately neglecting to mention. I wanted to get the verifiable facts out of the way first. Throughout most of the events that I've described, the aforementioned tall woman has been haunting nearly every waking moment of my life. Her presence was subtle at first, barely noticeable and easy to disregard. Maybe I would catch something swaying ominously in the distance that I couldn't fully make out. 
Perhaps there would be a long shadow stretching across the hallway at night, yet no one there to cast it. After the desecration of the ritual site, however, any semblance of subtlety was completely done away with. I saw her near everywhere that I looked, occupying some dim corner, a lanky figure with bluish-gray complexion, draped in a traditional white dress that was several sizes too small, as though it belonged to a child. Her hair was oily and sparse, barely clinging to her scalp and leaving little of her face to the imagination. God, that face. Apart from its unhealthy hue, there is technically nothing wrong with it. But the way that you would just stand there and look at me with this vacant smile and wide glassy eyes was just... I honestly can't think of an adjective that accurately describes how repulsive it felt. Dad still didn't see her. I think my mom did, but she just plain out refused to acknowledge it. Even if the disheveled woman was standing literally right there looming over her. One time, I cornered her about it and probably realizing that I was teetering on the brink of mental collapse, she told me. Your grandmother used to say that there are things out there that like to watch, but hate to be seen. Once you do, it's best to pretend like you don't. And so that's what I did. I spent over two months pretending like the grinning entity watching us from across the room wasn't there. Like its emaciated frame wasn't the first thing that I would see whenever I stabbed through that door. I wouldn't go as far to say that I got used to it. Trying to go to sleep with that, things to the wet propped against the opposite wall never got easy. And keep in mind that I was dealing with this in parallel with everything else going on in town. The reason why I'm telling you this, even though I probably shouldn't, is that the tall woman suddenly stopped appearing around the house just a few days prior to me stumbling across Maria's body. Last week, another murder was reported. The goat herder's wife was found in much the same state, with her battered remains tied to a tree directly outside of their home and a cowbell dangling from her neck. I have a feeling that you won't be the last one. So let's summarize, shall we? I'm a teenage girl trapped in the middle of nowhere with a homicidal ghost that exclusively preys on women and may or may not be connected to the curse that is progressively decimating our livelihood. I have next to no access to the outside world and the police can't be ours to help. FML There's a door in my basement that wasn't there before. Written by Lighting Nations In those first few days, the door had a mind of its own, manifesting around the house like a rabbit from a hat, never staying in one place for more than ten seconds at a time. But by day four, it seemed to have settled in the basement. Down there, the air was cool and shelves wrapped around three of the four sides. A bare bulb in the middle of the room brightened and dimmed as I pushed aside musty boxes marked Christmas decorations. Those photo albums had to be close by. As I inspected the nook beneath the narrow staircase, there is a sound to my right from the direction of the door. A heavy, toneless, frightening bang. 
I forced myself not to look over until it had happened again. And then there was a moment of jarring silence, followed by two knocks. Above my head, the bulb began to flicker. Now the air felt warm and clammy. Before, there had never been any sounds from behind the door. It just sat there, a tumorous growth along the wall, always vanishing with a rub of my eyes or a shake of my head. While I stood cemented on the spot, and I forced myself not to think about what lay on the other side, the bulb finally died. Now the door seemed to expand and contract like a pair of flexing lungs. Inhale, exhale. There it was again. Knock, knock. My brain screamed, run. But instead, both legs gave out and I collapsed into a shelf. Tins of white and blue paint toppled over and splattered across the floor. By the time that I found my feet, the knock had become a furious thumping that rattled the wood in its housing. The door came alive, lurching, pulsing, threatening to burst off its hinges. At the very last moment, as I had reached the top of the stairs, I glanced back and saw it jump violently, as if someone had swung a sledgehammer against the other side. In the safety of the downstairs hall, I realized that I had been holding my breath the entire time. Darren! My mom emerged from the kitchen, holding onto the wall for support. Just walking was difficult for her. I heard a crash. What happened? The dang light went out and I spilled some paint, I said. My left pant leg was speckled white. I'll pick up a new bulb and clean up the mess tomorrow. Later, she made us both a vegetable soup for dinner. The doctor had advised her to rest into the spinal surgery, my whole reason for moving back home, but convincing her to listen was like chewing salt. She filled two bowls and found a seat, and groaned painfully as she plopped down. We watched a news report about some bad thing that recently happened close by. A seven-year-old named Abby had vanished from her home. Two officers discovered her grandmother's body in a bedroom, her belly open like a fish. Mom tutted. Isn't that desperate? First the break-ins and now this. The story had sent shockwaves throughout the entire neighborhood. Tony and Clark, the couple who lived next door, even installed a video doorbell. Although, the side window that they sometimes left open was how most experienced burglars would break in. Mabby's mother, a blonde lady in her 30s, sobbed on camera and made a desperate appeal for anyone with information to come forward. Mom tutted and said, That poor, poor woman. Imagine what she's going through after losing both her mother and her daughter. When a picture of Abby had appeared, I switched off the TV. Mom turned to face me. Speaking of, when are you going to find a nice girl and settle down? Her voice had gone serious. I waited for the next part. I'm not going to live forever, you know. Ah, there it was. Ever since Dad's heart attack, Mom had made a point to frequently remind me how the only thing she wanted, before she kicked the bucket, 
with some grandchildren to spoil. Settle down, I asked. Where am I going to find someone who measures up to you? It was a futile attempt to dissolve the tension. She just glared at me. Soon mom was ready for bed. By the time that I helped her upstairs and into her gown, the door had crept to the sidewall of her room, almost entirely covered by a dresser. Switching on the bedside lamp, I said, There, anything else I can... My voice trailed off. Mom had reached forward, pressed a cold hand against my forehead and said, Is everything okay? You look pale. Sometimes it was hard to remember who was taking care of who. There was a clamor of noises and then the handle jiggled. Yeah, I'm fine, I said, just tired. The door thudded against the dresser and then from behind, I heard hard fingers scrape against the wood. Mom rolled onto her side, oblivious to the muffled noises. Okay, night, Darren. The scraping continued. Uh, night, Mom. For the rest of the evening, the door was more active than ever. Before, it never appeared for long. Heck, those first two days, I wasn't sure whether I'd actually seen it at all. But now it stalked me, following me to the bathroom along the hall and into the lounge. I felt perpetually spied upon. I imagined that I could hear its thoughts. Yep, I'm still here, and I'm not going anywhere. If not for my mom's condition, I would have hightailed it to the hotel, or maybe slept in a tent. I reminded myself that the door wasn't real, that it wasn't some boogeyman. We both know that's not true. In my bedroom, thunder boomed beyond the window. Rain fell hard against the glass, and the door dozed beyond the foot of my bed. I lay down and tried to sleep. After a few minutes, the handle began to rattle and turn. I sat up and stared so fixedly that I didn't even notice my heart miss its rhythm. The door slowly shivered open three inches, four inches, five. And as it did... The room shifted on its axis, tilting downward. My bed's metal legs slid across the wooden floor. The incline became steeper and steeper, until the floor was entirely vertical, and the door was thrown open wide. Beyond it lay a long black tunnel. Furniture fell towards the side of the room. My stomach leaped as it would on a roller coaster as I plummeted sideways. The bed rotated, becoming awkwardly pinched between walls, and at the very last second, I caught a hold of the frame and I held on. Darkness seeped out of the tunnel, snapping at the soles of my bare feet. The door wanted to swallow me whole, to drag me into endless blackness, into the sinister world on the other side. My heart pounded in my ears as it laughed. Wanna come play, Darren? My legs dangled above the hungry, hungry mouth. Palm sweat forced me to constantly readjust my grab. I couldn't hold on for much longer. Was this a punishment from God? Why? Why me? You know why. No, I screamed out loud. 
and with that, my strength gave out, and I fell onto the floor with a stiff grunt. Suddenly, the room and everything in it was right side up. Was it just a nightmare? From down the hall, my mom called my name. No, it wasn't a nightmare. The door had gone after her. You're too much trouble. I'll eat your mother instead. Much easier prey. I burst into her room and rushed to her side. What's wrong? Are you okay? I put a hand on her cheek. Speak to me. She looked puzzled. I was going to ask for a glass of water, but if you're feeling sick, I'll make you some. No, I'm fine. I just worried about you is all. Stay here while I get you that water. Still trembling from the earlier encounter, I returned to bed. The door remained perfectly still. Perhaps it was dozing. A few minutes later, there was a faint dabbing. I squeezed my eyelids together and folded the pillow over my ears, desperate to ignore the sounds, to pretend everything was fine. But now I could sense the door radiate malevolence, radiate hatred. That sense became intolerable, and Mom's soup almost slid up again. I finally looked over. Thunder boomed outside, briefly throwing light around the room. The door was no longer mounted against the wall. Now it was standing dead ahead, drawing closer and closer. As it approached my bed, the cramped room became claustrophobic. Something hefty threw itself against the other side, and like a child I pulled the sheets up over my head. The bumps and bangs grew louder and faster, and then it sounded like the armies of hell were about to burst through. And then the sounds vanished, and for a moment I thought that was it, that the nightmare was over. But as I lowered the sheet to my nose, the handle rotated all the way down. All I could do was lay still and watch the door swing outward, squealing on its hinges. Beyond the frame was part of a stone wall and a rickety set of stairs that descended into a thick, damp darkness. Swallowing a lump in my throat, I inched forward and whispered, Hello? Help me, said a tiny voice. The door stalked me through farm country, teleporting ahead to the edge of fields each time it disappeared in my rearview mirror. The stench of sun-baked cow crap was strong in my nostrils. Mom's neighbors had agreed to check on her while I was out of town, although I was far more concerned with the prospect of getting murdered out in the sticks. My destination was a high school football stadium. There were 16 people in the bleachers, one of whom was the sicko I had come to find. He had dirty blonde hair and wore an XXXL sweatshirt with a Jaguar, the home team's mascot, on the front. My forearm hair stirred at the sight of him. The guy would probably squish my skull with just one of his lunchbox-sized paws. Or maybe he'd cut my belly open since he was proficient at that. He sat alongside another man, likely his brother, I found a seat two rows back, and just as the pair began a spirited debate, 
about which of the cheerleaders would give her the best head. Down by the field, the door seemed to doze by the end zone. My target's name was Chance, and towards the end of the fourth quarter, as he bragged about his fancy new hunting rifle, a giant lump formed in my throat. After the game, I climbed into my Accord and followed him west. I kept my distance and I drove with the headlights off. Even though I had done nothing illegal, yet, the notion of what I was about to do sent my blood pressure into the stratosphere. I had broken into countless houses, but those were city homes whose occupants were unarmed, or they were on vacation. But here, these stakes were much higher. Once or twice, I almost lost the creep's pickup and had to slam on the gas. Throughout the journey, the door stayed left on the highway, lurching as if a locomotive had rammed into the other side. Chance eventually turned into a dirt road pinched between yellow fields. At the far end was a crooked farmhouse, leaning to one side like a drunk soldier supported by his rifle. Pulling up beside the road, the door settled amongst the weeds, threateningly close. Was this a warning? Act fast. If she winds up dead with dirt in her face and worms in her hair, I'll make sure that you join her. Just a little longer, I said out loud. Please. After sunset, I slipped a lockpick and a can of mace into my jacket's hidden pocket, hopped the fence, and I shuffled through the field. From behind a busted fence post, I watched Chance wander around the house, silhouetted against an inside light. The old building had a rickety porch that wrapped around two sides and plywood sheets nailed over sections of the roof. For the next hour, the wind made little twisters of dust as the door drew closer and closer until it finally touched the back of my heels entrenching me like a soldier in a foxhole. Didn't it understand that we had to wait. Otherwise, the whole plan would be a bust. At midnight, the lights finally went out, and then, with a chance of sleep, there was nothing to keep me from my duty, and besides the nerves, that is. Five minutes passed, and then another ten. I repeatedly psyched myself up, only to wuss out at the last second. Eventually, I let out a deep exhale, turned around, and said, I can't do this, I'm sorry. My grief poured out. I'll talk to the sheriff again and make him believe me. I'm breaking into that psycho's house, it's, it's too much. Something hammered the door. Fear drilled into me like a hot needle as it became faster and louder. The thuds which rattled the wood almost rattled my brain. I'm sorry, I said desperately. There was a terrifying thumping and then the door glided toward me sliding as if mounted on wheels. I tried to run, but instead it tripped and fell backward. My fingers sank into the dirt as I scrambled back. Imaginary icy claws seemed to crawl over my skin. Do it now, or I'll drag you out of this world and into the next. Stop, I screamed, not wanting to find out what was at the side. I'll make it right, I swear. After three deep breaths, I picked myself up and made my way toward the house. 
Since the porch would have sung under the faintest pressure, I crept around the back, where our kitchen window had no glass. Sliding through the narrow gap backward, the frame cut into my stomach, which made me picture chance slitting my belly again. Inside, the walls were caked with black mold, and fat flies buzzed around. There was a stack of slimy dishes infested with giant maggots, pulsating in mood, split open garbage bags, empty cans, and liquor bottles. This was not a man who took care of himself, or made rational decisions. I listened carefully to the wet snores from upstairs, louder than traffic. He was fast asleep. That was a good start. The old house seemed aware of me, rattling as I crept around. I made a lap of the ground floor, searching for hidden compartments or a secret room. Beneath the stairs, there was a thin slot along the wall that clicked and swung outward with a gentle push. Behind it was a hidden compartment with a metal door. As I carefully turned the stiff handle, the door groaned and whined, a sound which made my testicle shrink. I glanced at the ceiling. Upstairs, the rhythmic snores continued. If Chance woke up, could I make it out through the kitchen window before he had time to grab his rifle and come barreling down the steps? It seemed unlikely. As the door swung open, my heart stopped dead. There it was. The staircase. I had conflicted feelings. On one hand, I wasn't crazy. On the other, that meant I knew what was down there. I fell my way along a stone wall and I climbed down the steps. There was an ungodly stench of coldness and damp. No human belonged in that place. Halfway across the room, I stepped onto the corner of an old, stained mattress and froze. Hello? I whispered. A girl whimpered. Her voice sounded low. She was sitting on the floor. I crouched down until I could make out a frail figure huddled against the wall. When I reached out, the girl flinched and screamed. A shiver raced along my spine. Somebody walking over my grave my mom would say. I quickly clamped my palm over her mouth and whispered, Don't worry, I'm not him. I'm here to rescue you. When she stopped squirming, I said, I know who you are. Your name is Abby. People are looking for you. I'm going to get you back to your mom. But first, you have to be quiet. Can you do that for me? She nodded into my hand. I felt around, building a mental picture of the scene. A blanket covered Abby's legs and her wrists were cuffed and chained to the wall. Her lips were cracked and peeled. Her eyes sunken in dark pouches of flesh. She was a living skeleton, presumably because her capture hadn't fed her properly since taking her. No wonder the door was so irate. I leaned close to her and said, do you know where he keeps the key to these cuffs? She shook her head, her face beginning to tremble, and I knew that she was trying not to cry. Hey, that's okay, don't panic. I pulled on my lockpick and got to work. In the gloom with my hands so shaky and badly sweating, 
the task took much, much longer than I would have liked. My thoughts steered back to three nights earlier, when the door had opened in my bedroom and a voice had whimpered, Help me. A light bulb blinked on, revealing Abby, who I had recognized from the news, at the bottom of a rickety set of stairs. I watched through the doorway as her captor, Chance, descended the steps with a tray of half-devoured chicken wings. The entire sequence played out like a movie. No matter how hard I screamed or yelled, I was unable to interact with the scene in any way. Chance offered Abby a few morsels, which after some initial reluctance, she accepted. He reached out to caress her hair, but she flinched away, as far as her chain would allow. And then he said, Don't worry, not until you're ready. On his way back up the stairs, the last thing I saw was the jaguar in a sweatshirt, and then the door swung closed with a bang. I had gone straight to the police and explained what I had seen. A burly officer said, Yeah, sure, pal, we'll get right on your tip from the magic door. I went online and found out the mascot matched that of a high school football team in a small town, 60 miles west of my own. But the local sheriff's office hadn't been receptive to my suggestions either. And so, I had given up rescuing Abby. But then for the next few days, the door became more alive and animated than ever. It showed me her twice more, once alone, once with chance, and the message was clear. It's your fault she's in that situation, so you better do something about it. From then on, the door has stalked me morning, noon, and night, and the terrible thuds were so loud and jarring that I couldn't sleep or think. There had to be a reason for what it had showed me, and the only explanation was it wanted me to intervene, to rescue her. And if I didn't, since the police refused to help, I took matters into my own hands and that led me to chance. Back in the room, the padlock around Abby's cuffs soon popped open. I ripped them off and scooped her into my arms, but before I could do anything else, a bulb blinked on. Abby's sunken eyes opened wider than dinner plates. I spun around and saw Chance, a huge figure who looked almost comically large against the doorway, wearing a loud Hawaiian t-shirt covered with a barbecue sauce and sweat stains. His hairy belly spilled over his sweatpants, and he was taller than Abby and I stacked on top of one another. Who the hell for you? He snarled exposing a mouthful of rotted teeth. And then he pushed the metal door shut with a slam and he came down the steps. With Abby still in my arms, I retreated across the room and said, Easy now. What are you doing in my house? He growled. Please, mister, I just want to go home. Abby whispered, burying her head in my chest. Can you take me home? My mouth was open. It felt dry and I licked my lips. Hey, we can work this out. Nobody has to get hurt. Chance snickered. Work this out. I could see the veins in his temples. Just let the girl go and we'll forget this happened. I don't have to tell anybody who you are. My gut sank like I had tried to barter a deal with Satan himself. You break into my house, go snooping around, 
and you think I'm just going to let you stroll on out? He grinned and Abby sobbed. My heartbeat rose. Let us go, I said, meaning to sound like a threat, but it came out like I was begging. No, the girl's mine and she stays. Now, he was on the stone floor, less than six feet away. I wanted to run, to barrel past him, but there was no way that I would make it. Abby clung to me, begging to see her mommy. Chance came to a halt and said, Who the heck are you anyway? Looking back, I should have said the police or the FBI. I should have said my entire department knew exactly where I was, and that my disappearance would bring them knocking, and that he might as well surrender now while he charges were just kidnapping, instead of taking on murder as well. But all I did was swallow a lump and said, Nobody. Good. He came at me, and he was fast too, faster than I would have guessed. He clamped his hands around my throat and drove the back of my skull into the wall, while Abby tumbled to the ground. And then he reeled me back and he did it again. I smashed my elbow on the hinge of his jaw. I had been in scraps before, but Chance was practically superhuman, and he shrugged off the blow. For a moment, we waltzed around the room while Abby crawled into the corner whimpering. Chance hoisted me off the ground. Up close, I could smell his breath rotten and yellow. For a few seconds, I kicked my legs back and forth, before fumbling through my pocket for the mason spraying it directly into his eyes. He ignored the pain for about ten seconds before releasing me, at which point my own vision was swimming. Just the blowback felt like dousing both corneas with battery acid. I crawled around him while he pawed his red eyes and snarled like a rabid dog. He wildly swept his arms across the room in search of me. Abby had had her knees pulled into her chest, her head buried in her lap. Fighting chance was not an option. We had to run for it. But before I could reach her, the guy fumbled around the floor and seized me from behind. I flipped and twisted like a worm, trying to wriggle out of his grasp, but had all the success of a ten-year-old boy wrestling his father Chance's right hand clamped around my neck. There were at least five blows to my face and then I spat a sticky warm blood. Crap. Was this how it felt to get bludgeoned to death? There was more desperate fumbling. A finger in the eye, a kick to the knee. At one point I flipped onto my chest and Chance effortlessly picked me up and ran my face into the concrete wall again. Again and again until my front teeth had snapped. Things calmed out while Chance rubbed his eyes, unable to suppress the sting any longer. His rage seemed to build like a pressure cooker turned up too high. I almost wanted him to get it over with before. He became even more furious and decided to take it slow and make my death a long, drawn-out affair. Still squinting, he grabbed my neck and held me against the wall one last time. Death by strangulation. Honestly, it was something of a relief. At least soon, the pain would be gone. I failed. Sorry, Abby. At that moment, my thoughts rewound to the night of the abduction. I had broken into a fancy house, a three-story one with fancy knockers and a high iron fence. I had left my criminal past behind years earlier, but with my mom's medical bills piling up, I soon found myself thieving again. My timing had been awful. 
That night as I rummaged through the lounge, searching for jewelry or even a purse, there was a noise from the next room, and I dove beneath the table, thinking that the occupants had woken up. At the far side of the room was an open door through which an elderly lady, Abby's grandmother, staggered through. She had on a gray dressing gown and there was a long slit across her belly, through which I could see dark blood pumping out. Before she could even take five unsteady steps, a gigantic masked man, Chance, suddenly appeared, clamped a hand around her mouth and reeled her back. She held onto the doorway with one hand clenched so tight that the nails had separated from the bed, smearing red along the frame. The thick globs had the consistency of jelly. At the very last second, the lady's eyes flicked around the room and found mine. The realization hit her like a lightning bolt. Maybe if she could have talked, she would have said, My granddaughter's in the next room. Save her, please, please save her. But instead, she got dragged away. At the very last second, the lady grabbed a hold of the door and pulled it shut with a slam. And from that moment on, that same door haunted me. I was out of the house in a heartbeat, back home. I contemplated what to do. Should I call the police, but then what? They would ask me why I was in the house, how I saw what I saw, and I would have to tell them that I had broken in. And even if I had made up some plausible excuse, they would grow suspicious and look at the recent uptick in robberies and put two and two together. I justified it to myself a thousand different ways. I really didn't see anything. The man that was wearing a mask, it all happened too fast. Nobody would believe me. The attacker might come after my mom in an act of revenge. If I had known back then that the lady's granddaughter had been staying with her, I would have bit the bullet and confessed. But it was three days before the reports came in, and so, to my great shame, I kept my mouth shut. And that's when the door appeared. Those memories were driven from my mind by a roundhouse slab. In the cellar, darkness crept to the edge of my vision. My hands beat feebly at Chance's face and chest. This really was the end. Knock, knock. Wait, what was that? And then thumping. My hand fumbled across the wall. The door was there, threatening to rattle right off its hinges. I felt around and I touched the cold handle. There was no way of knowing what might happen if I had opened it. Maybe a horned demon with a red-hot poker would step through and drag me to hell as retribution for my sins. Or maybe I would get sucked through into an endless void. But none of that mattered. If there was even the slightest chance opening it could help Abby, I had to take it. Call it my atonement. It was Hail Mary time. I closed my eyes and I twisted at the handle. The door flew open. There was a hefty bang as it hit the wall which made a chance jump. Had he heard it too? Suddenly, the immense pressure on my neck had eased. Even through the mace-induced tears, I could read a chance's expression. He was confused, terrified even. The door was no longer in my head. Chance could see it too. There was a noise from behind it, unsteady footsteps. As I craned my neck to look over, fingers with missing nails wrapped around the frame, 
I smelled something foul, something dark and sour like dead fish. It was a thousand times worse than the taste of the cellar. Chance released my neck, sending me sliding to the floor, just as a twisted figure stepped into the room. It was Abby's grandmother, or it had been at least. Half of her skull was crushed and her neck had been broken. Part of the collarbone jutted out from her neck, and from her forehead, fluid seeped over her eyes, nose, and mouth, dripping off her chin and over the floor. Dangling limpy from her waist were shiny intestines, coiled around her leg and trailing behind her. The nails on her right hand were missing, and she was making a series of gurgling sounds in her throat. Chance scrambled back, his eyes hazy and pale like a man struck with cataracts. The twisted figure slowly turned toward me. I could practically hear her thoughts. You've done your part and paid for your mistakes. Now take Abby and go. You don't want to see this next part. In the corner, Abby had had her hands over her ears and her head buried in her thighs. I scooped her up and whispered, Keep your eyes closed. Now that the adrenaline was wearing off, my face throbbed painfully. It occurred to me that Abby's grandmother had perhaps let the events play out a little longer than is strictly necessary, as a form of punishment for being a coward. I barreled up the steps in a heartbeat, and behind me, Chance was screaming, endlessly screaming. I could still hear his screams from halfway across the field. At the sheriff's office, there were lots of questions. He was suspicious as to how I had found Abby, and although it was clear he didn't buy my story, since she confirmed I rescued her and had nothing to do with the abduction, he didn't push the issue for long. As for Chance, two sheriffs found him in a cellar, lips blue and face sickeningly white. His cause of death, a heart attack. For bringing Abby home safe and sound, I became something of a local hero. The official story was that I had spotted a suspicious vehicle the night of the abduction and through amateur sleuthing, found her captor and took the law into my own hands. A few months passed. My face healed, my mom's surgery came and went, and soon it was looking like she could take care of herself again. With regular visits from me, of course. She was immensely proud of what I had done, and on more than one occasion suggested that I use my newfound fame to romance a nice girl then to settle down. The day before I moved out, there was a knock at the door. The very moment it slid open, Abby darted forward and hugged my waist. Her mom was standing on the porch carrying a peanut pie. Things had been crazy since the rescue, and we had all crossed paths on more than one occasion. But now that everybody had had a chance to heal, she wanted to give me a proper thank you. Afterward, she and Abby wandered across the yard hand in hand. Mom whispered from behind the door. She's got no wedding ring. Invite her in for cake. I jumped. I hadn't even realized she was there. No, I couldn't. Excuse me, miss. Mom shouted as stepping outside. The lady stopped and turned around. And Darren wanted to know if you and Abby would like to come in for cake. Abby jumped up and down and nodded enthusiastically. Please, Mom, please. She smiled. Okay. 
Mom nudged me in the ribs and said, Now you be a gentleman and go set the table, huh? Forcing a smile, I rolled my eyes and kissed her on the forehead, and then said, Sure thing. Don't go in the forests of Colorado. Here's why. Written by Tiny Crash 181312. Hey, first of all, I want to thank you for listening to this. I really have felt the need to get this off my chest, so here I am. So I suppose now is when I start the story. So this was about eight years ago over the summer in Colorado. My buddy and I, who will be referred to as Ryan, were out on a Bigfoot hunting expedition. Not to kill, but to catch evidence of its existence. For this reason, me and my friend had brought a bunch of cameras, ranging from thermal cameras to motion censored. We had a lot. One of these said cameras was quite special to me. You could say that it was my favorite. There wasn't anything special about the camera itself, rather the sentimental value that it had. This camera was given to me by my mother for my 13th birthday, who had passed away one year later. The reason I brought the camera was because of its value to me, and how much more value to me it would have if I had caught evidence of Bigfoot on it. Looking back now, I could see how this decision was quite stupid, and there were many things bad that could have happened. From a peaceful deer hitting it with its antler, to another person finding it and stealing it. But none of this had gone through my head at the time, so I brought it anyways. Me and my friend arrived at the said spot Bigfoot was spotted. As we were moving out all of our gear, I just felt an off-putting vibe from the spot. Shrugging it off... I continued moving our gear out on a table, which included the cameras from earlier, raw meat, to bait him in front of the cameras, ghillie suits, to walk around a little to see if we can't find him, and GoPros, to go on our heads while roaming. After everything was set up, we enjoyed ourselves making some lunch at campfire, and really just messing around. Not loudly, of course, because the entire point was to catch Bigfoot. As night came upon us, we had slowly started drifting out of our camper and getting energy drinks to be able to stay up all night. Our plan was simple. Start off the night roaming for about four hours and finish it watching the cameras that we had set up that were able to broadcast live footage to our computer. We put on our ghillie suits and our GoPros, and lastly, a rifle each, considering worse came to worst. As we started to head out, I noticed the faint stench of something rotten in the air. I asked Ryan if he had noticed anything weird and he replied with, Oh no, nah, it's probably just the meat that we set out earlier. Doesn't last long out in the heat. Assuming that he was right, I just headed on with him. But I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that the stench of freshly rotten meat was distinctly different than very old rotten meat. I was thinking of the ways that this could have been the same meat when Ryan had stopped suddenly. I started looking around and I noticed it too. It was hard to describe, 
but anyone who's seen A Quiet Place will know the basic look of the creature that we saw. It was a gray, humanoid-like creature with long legs and arms. But the main feature that set this creature apart from the ones from A Quiet Place, this creature had massive, bulging eyes. I slowly got down to the ground and I observed this creature. Ryan, noticing, slowly did the same thing. As we went down, I realized that we had gotten it on camera, which conclusively meant that this expedition was a massive success. But before I could become too excited, I completely reached the ground to crush some leaves, making a very loud sound. My first instinct was to start running, but Ryan had pulled me to the side behind a tree, carefully peeking around the corner. I noticed the creature was preparing to attack the position that I was just in. Trying to stay as quiet as possible, I stayed completely still. Ryan realizing as well, he stopped moving too. As the creature ran by, I whispered very quietly, We need to leave now. Ryan whispered back, We need to get to the trailer. We have evidence of something in these woods, Bigfoot or not, but we can't stay here overnight. I was about to agree with them until I remembered my camera. That camera meant so much to me that I didn't want to just leave it there. I replied to him, You know how much that camera means to me. I can't just leave it behind. Ryan sighed and said, Fine, where did you set it up? Thinking through where we were in the current moment, I replied, About two miles west, maybe less. Ryan instantly replied with, No, that's way too far, we can't do that. I completely agreed, but I knew this thing was nocturnal. So that means if we made it back to the camper, that we could wait it out and go get my camera later. After telling Ryan my idea, he figured that it might just work out. But we had to stay as quiet as possible in getting back to the camper. Every step that we took, we were as quiet as possible. And we figured any disturbances would attract this creature. We checked every step to make sure that it was quiet. Now we configured that the creature that we were dealing with, its eyes either didn't have a purpose, or it couldn't detect us with our ghillie suits. But we also knew that it had attacked sound. So, if we were to get attacked, we would just have to take a few steps back to avoid it being killed. With this, we attached some night vision goggles that we had brought with us. We were unsure as to if this creature had a heat signature, meaning these could be throwing us down, but it was a risk worth taking. As we inched closer to our RV with each step, we felt more unsafe. We hadn't seen the creature in action yet, but we also weren't wanting to. Once we were close enough to the RV, we got inside and closed the door as slowly as possible. Once the door was closed, I felt a false sensation of relief and I grabbed an energy drink. Now at first, you would think that there was nothing wrong with grabbing an energy drink, would you? Well, we learned how that's so wrong. As I grabbed the drink, I offered Ryan one too. He accepted and we were getting ready to open them 
but that all-too-familiar crack of the can. The very instant that I opened that drink, I knew that if the creature was anywhere near us, that it would plow straight through the RV. I instantly grabbed a hold of Ryan and threw us both on the bed near the back of the RV. And sure enough, a few seconds later, a loud bang and with the last of three strikes the door was shattered. Now we assume this creature's eyes didn't have any value but that was at night, because the instant that it ran in, it turned its head to look right at us. Its pupils dilated and it was ready for the attack. Both me and Ryan panicked and we started running towards our rifles, when the monster jumped over us and stood in front of us. Now one thing we probably should have done was turn the lights off, but we didn't think of that at the time. No, the instant that we could, we ran our butts straight out of that RV. While we were running, we got split up, which is definitely not a good thing when being hunted by a creature such as this. I continued running away when I found a bush to hide in. I heard nothing crinkling or crackling around me, so I quickly but quietly hid myself within the bush. A few minutes after I situated myself, I heard a scream in the distance, but this isn't the inhuman scream you expect to hear from humanoid creatures. This was Ryan's scream. Now I'm not a genius, but I knew this meant one of two things. Number one, Ryan was probably dead. Or number two, he was in great danger. This is where I had to make a very risky decision. I could either walkie-talkie to him and tell him where I am so that he could hide, or leave him so that he could find his own spot. But if he was dead, the walkie-talkie would distract this said creature and keep me hidden for however much longer I might need to be. Or it would tell Ryan my location. Now, if he's already in a hiding spot, it will give away his location and possibly get him killed. This decision is still the most difficult decision I've made to this day. And so I did it. I walked in and said as quietly as possible, Are you safe? I had no response for about 12 seconds until I got another scream from Ryan, but this one got caught off randomly and it followed by the typical humanoid creature screaming. I had killed my friend over a camera. I still can't believe myself to this day. I should have known that it was a bad idea. I shouldn't have walked him to him. I indirectly had killed my best friend. I sat in that bush for hours thinking of how he could have been alive if I had trusted his survivalist instincts. He could have been alive with my ignorance. No, my idiocy hadn't led me to kill him. I guarantee you that he hated me for that in the last few moments of his life. I sat in that bush until the morning. As soon as it was safe to come out, I decided to leave. I decided that it wasn't worth being here in these woods anymore. But the camera, I mean. Ryan died because I wanted my camera. I just can't leave. And leave his death in vain. So I decided that I was going to get it. I would get that camera and if I could find it, my friend's body too. You may think that it's not good to have a body with you on a drive, but I couldn't leave my best friend out there to rot. He was always there for me and now it was my turn. And so I headed out. I knew what I needed to do and I knew that I was going to do it. 
Step one was find Ryan. As I set out with my rifle, of course, I thought of where his body could be. I knew that I heard him scream to the left of me from within the bush, which could be further up north from the position that I was in. So that's where I would head to. As I was heading on, I noticed the same stench from when we had arrived to the right of me in some heavy bushes. So I decided to investigate. I headed over and pushed through some heavily bushed area. And what I found was the worst thing that I could have seen. And I still have nightmares and PTSD all from this single place. There were dozens if not hundreds of bodies piled upon each other. All of which were gutted. Some hanging from their intestines. Others dismembered. The ages of these people ranged from a noticeably elderly couple, recently killed to a toddler, looked to be no older than six. All these people were in awful shape. And then I saw Ryan, his head at least, which was on a sharp tree branch, of which the rest of his body also hung. After seeing this, I knew that there was no chance of me getting him down. He was at least 50 feet up in the air and it was already dang near noon. As I quickly got out of there, I decided the best choice was to get my camera and run for it. Now this would hopefully go easy and not have any problems, but I wouldn't be telling the rest of the story if something didn't. I headed to where the cameras were supposed to be, successfully without anything trying to stop me. Once I got there, I found what looked to be footprints leading from where my camera used to be. I was now upset. I had no friend and I didn't have my camera. And at this moment, I decided that I was getting that thing regardless. I slowly tracked the footprints to the lake with a rather large waterfall. Mind you, by the time that I got there, it was almost dusk. And then I noticed... As the night came upon me, the creature had come out from the waterfall. I knew everything that I needed to know now. Quietly stepping around the waterfall from the other direction of this creature, I snuck inside. Behind the waterfall was a cave, somewhat deep by the looks of it. As I slowly crept inside, I noticed all kinds of human items, such as boots, smartphones, silverware, and of course, my camera. As I quickly moved to my camera, I noticed something else nearby. There was something smooth, gray, spotted black. It was an egg. Now, the first thing that I thought was that it was asexually reproducing. But remembering how old some of the bodies from the death zone, or so I decided to call it, some seemed to be years old, which means that there could definitely be more than one creature now there has to be more than one. I needed to get out of here now. I grabbed a hold of my camera and I started running. I knew that if I could run about the same speed, and I considered that I could get far enough away, I might be able to wait out on the night again. As I ran, I heard no less than about five loud screeches from behind, and then three or four more of them in the surrounding woods. I was screwed. My first instinct was to hide on the edge of the cave, but this wouldn't work since this is how they get in and out. But then I realized, the water, 
I could get into the water. If I could get in there and stay as still as possible, the noise of me treading should be masked by the waterfall. So that's what I tried. I dove into the water and I sat there, slowly treading. As I sat there, I saw, considering I had counted right, 17 creatures crawl out of that cave. I had to stay where I was, but I wasn't the best at treading water. No, as a matter of fact, I could only probably last a minute or two. I started to realize that this was a bad idea, and I slowly started swimming to the other side of the shore. But there was a problem. Considering the size of the lake by the time that I got to the other side, I would be making so much noise. They would undoubtedly hear me swimming, and if they didn't, they would hear me panting. So once all the creatures were far from the caves, I got out of the water and quickly got to a bush closer to my RV. I can't even count on both of my hands how many creatures had passed by me. They were on a hunt. They wanted to get me. Then as the sun was about to rise, I decided to lift my head up a little and look around. And I saw a creature. And then the dripping noises. I noticed that I was still wet. Due to me standing still and there being no sun to help me dry off, I was still wet and dripping. The creature turned. I slowly moved away, knowing what was about to happen and within seconds, the place that I had been hiding had a nasty looking set of teeth and claws chewing and clawing it up. As I ran, I ran past everything. Other creatures, deer, snakes. And then I realized that they all turned and chased me. Every bird, every bug, everything was on my tail. They had influence over the forest that night. During the day, they had no control, but at night, they had almost all of it. And this is why they hunted at night, because they were able to control other animals as well. While they can see in the day, they prefer control over sight. With what was now a massive horde chasing after me, I kept running and running and running until I got back to the truck. I noticed that most of the trailer wouldn't make it back including the cameras that these creatures were caught on. But at the same time, my life mattered the most to me. I got into the truck and I twisted the key. And luckily, the truck started after a few tries and I stomped on it. I was probably going 60 on the dirt path, which was conveniently faster than everything that I had on my tail. I was out of there extremely quick and I had no time to waste. Once I was out, I contemplated what had actually happened. I mean, I hadn't slept in the past two days and I wasn't feeling good at all. I knew that the Bigfoot group that I was on the expedition for would believe everything, but that the cops wouldn't. Going in with a friend and coming out without one looks like it would make me the prime suspect in his disappearance. But then, I should just bring the cops to the death zone, shouldn't I? But I don't want to put anyone else at risk. I then realized how bad the situation really was. Once I was back, I decided to tell the cops what had happened, but to no surprise, they took me into custody. They asked for the location, and I told them exactly where. And I told them to only go there during the day. While they didn't find any creatures there, they did find the death zone. And they all came to the conclusion that some of the bodies were older than me, and they inevitably let me free. 
And to this day, I regret every second of that trip. And knowing that those things existed sucks enough, so I'll have to apologize to you guys now. But hopefully none of you have gone through anything like I did. I work at a wildlife reserve in Kenya. The animals are different after dark. Written by Shane Superville. I have loved certain things. Not the same things that have brought me joy and peace. I can't even stand to look at them. To think of them. Forgive me if the flow of the writing is staggered. But a lot has happened over the past 24 hours and I'm still in the process of collecting my thoughts and much more in my words. I'm a warden for one of Kenya's larger game reserves, whose name will be withheld for obvious legal and professional reasons. As a Briton, I've been in the country for the past year, shuffling between administrative duty to fieldwork with some of the more experienced guys. I enjoyed the fresh air, the strong breeze and the open plains and above all, the animals. Mention wildlife reserve to the average person and it conjures up images of snarling big cats or charging rhinos, but not to me. In the time that I've been here, the most danger that I faced was skinning my all too pale knees on the bark of a tree where I tried to install a trail camera. Not that I was afraid of the animals. Growing up in Kent, Attenborough, and documentaries were the closest that I could get to the African savannas, and I simply could never get enough. Between my father's drinking and my mom leaving the family, I found peace in the rolling plains of the Serengeti, and the peaks of Kilimanjaro, where people would tremble at the sight of lions and leopards, I was in awe. And as corny as it might sound, I used to imagine that they were my friends. After all, there weren't many that I could turn to. I loved all the creatures, well, at least until last night. For the 12 months that I'd been here, all of my duties and errands never required me to remain on the reserve after dark. I never thought much of it. I mean, I usually would begin work at around 7am, making routine patrols, doing the occasional site visit, a headcount of animals together, with rudimentary research for any visiting academics. So it really made sense that I would sign out well before sunset. Yesterday was different, however. Kamanji, my supervisor, advised that I come in for the late shift. It's not something that we normally do, he said. I could hear the unease in his voice. Kamanji was an aging bureaucrat stuck in an underfunded, understaffed job, with few perks and even fewer reasons to stick around. His dull, monotone voice had something else that morning. It was a tremble. A few of the regulars on the night shift will be here by 6pm to guide you, 
After that, you're on your own. But it's really pretty dull until morning relief arrives. I agreed, but the sound of Kamanji's voice stuck with me even after hanging up. Maybe I had imagined it. I had never met any of the night shift staff. They were supposedly the ones that had most danger. Not really from the animals, but more from other people. Poachers were the biggest problem around here. Back in 2016, when IS was trying to stake a claim in East Africa, I heard of a few run-ins with a convoy of militants who tried to set up a supply line to the northeast of the reserve. But the last few years have been more or less quiet. For these reasons and more, we try to keep a roster of at least 10 men on the night shift, with an additional 5 always on standby. But with budget cuts together with the pandemic, it had forced us to do more with less, meaning make the most out of 5 guys at the most. I packed what I thought I would need, including an expensive night vision camera, that I thought I would never get to use. I felt a creeping dread about taking up the night shift. Poachers and bad guys aside, I felt as if I wasn't being told a lot of what I was getting into. And that made me ask questions I realized I had never really asked before. Most notably, how come I never saw any of the night staff since I was the first one at the reserve for the morning shift. I pushed these things to the back of my mind to stay focused on the task at hand. Even though I didn't necessarily have a fear of the animals, it was a line of work that demanded focus at all times, even more so after dark, I would imagine. I got to the reserve just as the sun had dipped below the horizon. There, I met a grizzled-looking man, decked out in green safari fatigues, who had introduced himself as Anthony. Wrinkles spread across his face like a map of Kenya. He gave me a firm shake and introduced me to Lamani and Siranka. This was the night shift. They seemed a bit more rougher than the usual day staff. A few times while speaking with the guys, I noticed Anthony looking at me, almost studying me out of the corner of his eyes. I thought that it was pretty strange, but then I realized that being new to the job, he was probably skeptical of having me on as a supervisor. I tried not to think much of it, I was a new face after all, and I wasn't exactly sure of what lay ahead. But I tried to approach it with the same professionalism that I always did. Oh, how wrong I was. Anthony explained that, unlike daytime duties, I would spend a lot more of my time driving around the trails of the reserve with the other guys in a jeep. Only Siranka would stay behind at our outpost. The purpose of this, he said, was to ensure the animals were, as he put it, in good order. This confused me a little bit. Usually, the animals managed well without our help. 
This was, after all, their home. And there were enough herds and packs around to ensure that they looked after each other. Anthony must have seen the confused look before continuing. Just look at them. Nothing more. Don't get close. Even with the advice, I saw a look of concern wash over his face. It was the look of someone realizing that they had got the wrong man for the job. By 9pm, we drove to the southernmost portion of the reserve. Anthony turned off the lights and killed the engine of the jeep. There he sat in darkness and silence for almost three minutes, before I tried to crack a joke to break the tension. Quiet, he instructed. No sooner had he said that, I had heard it. About 100, maybe 140 meters away was the sound of something, a shrill cry that seemed to rattle the hood of our jeep. I almost leapt out of the seat before I felt a strong palm grip my wrist. Relax, Anthony said in the same voice as he would say good evening. Shortly after, I heard a cry of zebras, only they didn't sound quite right. It's difficult to explain, but it almost sounded like something pretending to be a zebra. Anthony muttered something to Lumani, who was in the back seat. I heard him radio back to Siranka at the outpost. We're heading over to the source of the noise, he said as he turned the keys in the jeep and the engine roared to life. I still wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing out here. As Lumani handed us headlamps, and we drove towards these strange sounds. We stopped again and killed the lights and engine of the jeep, before venturing through a narrow dirt track lined with dry shrubs. Have you ever used a gun before? Anthony asked. I struggled to answer it. My work had never required it. I was a field researcher after all. Forget it. Just stay close to us, he coldly instructed. After about five minutes of walking, we came to a clearing, and that's where I saw them. A herd of zebras only, not quite. And between the darkness and the poor vision of the night, my brain hurt trying to make sense of what I saw before me. Zebras are what looked like zebras but they looked corrupted. I saw a zebra with a pair of human eyes and a mouth that seemed too big for any animal. His lips peeled back into an unnatural grin. His eyes. I felt his gaze settle on me into cold, hot burning on me. And there were others. Another zebra's mouth opened up, not in his head where it should be, but beneath his neck his head hanging limply behind, like some abominable Pez dispenser. A headless zebra strutted along calmly, as another walked upright on two legs like a human. I felt a chill seeing this. My dinner churned to my stomach seeing this and hearing their laughs and noises. Suddenly, Anthony's voice shook me. 
Don't take your eyes off of us. He scolded, but before I could obey, I heard a noise behind me. I whipped around to see what it was, only to find nothing. In the time that it took me to do that, Anthony and Lumani were gone. It was impossible. They were only an arm's length away from me, and I only turned for a second. Maybe even less yet, they were nowhere to be seen. I saw the z the thing straying towards me and I ran. The flow of my headlight barely lighting the way across dirt and rocks as I ran across the savannah. What the heck did I get myself into? I tried to retrace my steps back to the jeep, but it was of no use. Between the running and the darkness, I was perfectly lost. My legs were burning, my chest hurt. What were those things? I felt like I was being punished. I felt for my radio, only to realize that it fell out. I avoided the trees, knowing that that was where the leopards on the plains took their rest, and I didn't want to replace one problem with another. I ducked behind a nearby shrub, hoping to wait out what I saw. After a short while, I heard my name. I knew that Siranka would have come to check on us. I was about to climb out of the shrubs when something seemed off. I wasn't being called by the name that I had introduced myself to Siranka and the other guys. I was being called by my other name. My real name. And then I realized the voice calling me didn't sound like Siranka's. In fact, it didn't even sound Kenyan. It sounded British and I knew whose voice it belonged to. Only the owner of the voice has been dead for years and buried in a British cemetery. It slurred with the sound of a man who had had one too many scotch on the rocks. All the while I hid from it in the bushes of a Kenyan savanna. The same way that I hid from him when I was a child under my bed. A giraffe, only it wasn't really a giraffe, had sailing much longer than even a giraffe's head had any right being, both eyes missing, calling my name in the cold night. I felt a shudder quake across my body as this unnatural abomination treaded mere feet from me calling my name. I must have fell asleep in the bushes because, when I woke up, the sun's rays were beginning to creep from over the horizon. I never felt so much relief before in my life. In the distance, I saw the jeep and I made a run for it. But by that time, the few animals I did glimpse seemed to be normal. I didn't take any chances as I pushed the gas back to the outpost, where I was prepared to give a proper scolding to Siranka for not following the proper SOPs when it came to missing staff. Only no one was there. No Siranka and certainly no Anthony or Lumani. I dialed Kamanji immediately, and he along with a few other senior officials visited the area within the hour. We alerted the proper authorities and I gave my statements to everyone who had asked. I haven't been given the full picture as of yet, 
And to be honest, I don't even know if I want the full picture on what happened on that night. Those animals, whatever they are, they were corrupted or worse yet. That's what they always were when the lights went out. Thank you all for listening to today's story lineup. I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as I enjoyed reading them. I'd also like to give another big thank you to today's sponsors, ShipStation. For two free months of free no-hassle, stress-free shipping, go to ShipStation.com and click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in Mr. Creeps. And HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16 and use code MrCreeps16 for up to 16 free meals and to 3 free gifts. As February starts settling in, make sure you all bundle up and remain toasty despite the cold weather. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay creepy.